Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. My name is Casey Scott, and I'm an alcoholic, but my good friend Matt, <laughs> he's not. I haven't heard you say that like that on the show. That, that's funny. Why'd you say that? Well, I just, I don't know. Sometimes things just pop in my head. Are you comfortable saying that? You know what? I really am. I'm 100% comfortable yeah. saying I'm an alcoholic. And yeah. Maybe you're not because I talk a lot, but you might be shocked of how many times I tell people that I'm an alcoholic a day. Really? Yeah, and 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 it just comes out so effortlessly, and and and, and I'm not I'm not embarrassed by it or anything. Like like if I'm at a golf tournament and people come up and go, "Hey, do you guys want some shots?" I go, "I can't. I'm an alcoholic." And every once in a while, someone will be like, huh? and "I go, no, I'm serious." <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and and then I then I say something like, "Because if I start drinking now." Things are going to get ugly, right? right. And um, but yeah, I I don't have a problem telling people that I'm. But you're going to beat everybody on the back nine if they've been doing shots in the beginning. Still, there are some people who can drink and play better golf. Yeah, that's true. And that was the lie that I told myself for so many years that I needed that four beer buzz to to control my swing thoughts and just kind of get out there and relax. But the reality was I could never keep that four beer buzz. No, and, and so my golf game just went to crap. Right now, I'll be. I'm not trying to be boastful. But my handicap's an eight. Wow. And it's never been below 10 in my whole entire life. And I've been golfing with my father since I was 12. Yeah. And so um, I really enjoy golfing. And I enjoy golfing sober. And I enjoy life sober. Because you can really enjoy it. Yeah. Like, I hang out with some heathens. Uh, I know. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and they like to drink. And yeah. it, it we've talked about it before, and I, I usually leave the party around 11 when people start getting cross-eyed and talking to your shoulder. Yeah. But I like the conversations that come up to it. And, I, and like, I, I was joking, and I was there with all my buddies, and we were on, like, the seventh tee or something like that. And I was just curious. I go, hey, guys, how many times has my name been thrown in your face when you've come home from golf drunk from your wives? <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? Like, hey, Casey seems to be able to do it. Yeah. Why can't you guys? Yeah. You know, and, and a couple of them said, oh, no, we've heard it before. I'm sure they have. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't. I'm... Let me jump in with a question. Can yeah. I jump in a question while yeah. you're stammering? Yeah. Um, I want to know what you would have thought of somebody 10 years ago. 20 years ago, you're out golfing. Somebody says, who, who wants shots? And they said, no, I'm an alcoholic. Like, what would have your reaction, what would your reaction have been? I'm a shame dancer. No, I want to, I'm curious. I would have done everything I could to see if I could break that guy. To see if you get him to drink? Yep. Yeah? Why do you think? Because I didn't want proof out there that you didn't need alcohol to have a good time. Yeah. It's a little threatening, huh, to have somebody there who... Yeah. Yeah, I think that happens to people when they announce like when they're they're straightforward and honest, I think sometimes they get that pressure. Like I was golfing with this guy the other day and uh they were at the turn they were going to get beers and he wanted to give me a beer and I was like, No, nah, I'm good. And I didn't at that point I didn't tell him I was an alcoholic. And he's like, Wait, come on man, it's you know, it's it's a Friday and I was like, I'm good. And then we were teeing off and I went, I'm an alcoholic. And then he spent the next five holes apologizing to me. Oh, did he really? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, hey, look, you don't have to apologize. Yeah. I mean, I'm okay. And it, that didn't offend me. That didn't threaten me. I didn't take it in, in, in any way bad. Yeah, I don't think you get offended. No. Yeah. But 10 years ago, I would have said, what? What's wrong with you? You would have kind of teased him and yeah. coerced him. And-, and I'm ashamed of that. Yeah. Well, but I mean... Okay, I think what, all of our feelings are valid. Yeah. I do think that feelings have information in them. And so sometimes we get hung up on a feeling like shame. 
and then we just stay with it and it doesn't really serve us any good. So it's good to shift from the feeling to asking yourself, what's the information? So if you would have felt ashamed back then. And inferior. Okay. I would have felt inferior. inferior. Yeah, 100%. Like, how can this guy go out and have fun without this? Because the lie I told myself is this is the only way I had fun. Yeah. Or the only way I only thing I associated so, with so fun. So it threatened your reality of yeah. how, how you managed your life. Yeah. So that's some good self knowledge to realize that like you you weren't just drinking for fun. I mean, you were kind of drinking to hold everything together. And when somebody threatened that with their comment of "I'm an alcoholic, I don't drink," that that was hard for you to manage. I'm not blaming anybody for my alcoholism because I know that it was you know what I did. But to be fair, I was conditioned, I was groomed, if you will, to thinking that alcohol was the only way to have fun. And it's the way that people had the most fun. Mm. From the movies I watched as a kid. Oh, well, yeah. Definitely. Uh, to college life, to when I first got in my early career, who my job was the party guy. Right. It, you know, I mean, that was my identity. Your job was to make sure that the the guests coming on the show and the concerts, they were all having a good time. Yeah, I mean, I i thought of myself as the Kool-Aid guy for alcohol that was busting through the wall of a party going, hey, look who's here, let's go, <laughs> you know, and let's have some fun. And right. I... In, in in all honesty, thought I was there to save the day, to yeah. save the party, to, to bring fun to people. Well, I mean, in some ways you were, right? I mean, you that really was technically your job was to entertain people, and it still is, but you can do it sober now. And we had some fun, and, and, yeah. and, and, and that's one thing that I struggle with because now my kids are getting to the age where alcohol's at parties. My oldest is all going off to college, and I still talk to her, and, and, and she told me she hasn't drank yet. And, and I think she would tell me the truth. Yeah. And and she hasn't, but some of her friends are. Sure. And she goes, your dad, it just doesn't appeal to me right now. And, and, and I like that, and we have those conversations. But I don't – I have a hard time when they ask me, was it all bad? Yeah. Because it wasn't. Well, I think to be credible, you have to be honest, and you have to say I had there's some really a reason good times. why – People look like they're having fun because the first few drinks you loosen up yeah. and it does that little buzz and it feels good. But then it, it, for, even if you're not an alcoholic, it goes south pretty quick if you keep drinking. Yeah. If, if you overshoot your window, you yeah. overindulge or, you know, you're hung over the next yeah. day. There's a lot of there's a lot of downfalls. And the problem is teenagers and young adults already are terrible at making decisions. Impulse control is horrible. Yes, it really is. And a lot of that has to do with the last part of your brain to develop your frontal lobes is the part where we have impulse control. And so not just teenagers, but young adults into their early to mid 20s still struggle with that. So you throw some alcohol on top of that, which also reduces our ability to make good decisions, and boom, we're off to the races. I, I was expecting this conversation to go a little bit differently, and I brought some stuff, but I like where this is going okay. because I think this is one of the mistakes we as parents make when talking to our children's about, children about drug and alcohol because what we tell them is what our parents told us, don't do this, it's bad, but watch what I do on the weekends because this is what I'm out doing. Right. You yeah. know, or and then all of a sudden they go through their wild stage and then they get sober or they don't drink anymore, they choose religion or whatever it may be, they don't do that. Mm -hmm. So when my kids ask me, was it fun? 
yeah, there were some really, really fun times. Yeah. But there were some really, really bad but, times as well. Yeah, the fun times usually end in bad times, so they kind of go together. Yeah. yeah. And so you got to be careful, but, yeah. you know, when kids... We've had people on the podcast who said, my parents never said do drugs, and the first time I smoked a joint, I thought, what are they lying to me about? Because this is amazing. And so it starts to question everything that they've told them because they were like, this seems pretty cool. Right. Yeah. So I think you have to be honest about the effects. There's a reason people drink. There's a reason people smoke weed. There's a reason people do drugs. And uh, There's a a reason people eat bad food. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason you pull into Wendy's and, you know, eat a uh, triple, triple, or whatever. The Baconator. Yeah, Baconator. There you go. Um, I wish I could bring this person on, but earlier this week I had visited with somebody who I've known for a couple of years now, and this person is now a couple, almost two years sober. But this person is well under the age of 21, and they started drinking and smoking weed when they were in fifth grade. Wow. And we had an interesting conversation because they've had a tragedy in their family. And this person was saying it was really tempting uh, to go ahead and drink with everybody. And the the family kind of got together and part of that was drinking and it got out of hand. And this person was having this real quandary in, in our session between I wanted to just be able to get drunk and numb out and leave it all behind like everybody else was doing. And then the other part of me knew that that would make me feel terrible. It wouldn't make anything better. I'd feel worse tomorrow. I'd feel ashamed. And they chose not to. Mm-hmm. But I thought, number one, that's that's pretty good logic that yeah. you have to hold on to. But for this young person, that's going to be a long road in their life to continue to make that better choice each time. But I was very proud of them for doing that. And it's interesting to see that like, even a person who's who's young, who's been using for a while, they can realize when they are an addict. You know, when we talk about drugs and alcohol and addiction, we often think it's a young person's game. True. I want to play a game real quick. <laughs> okay. Raise your hand if you thought starting a meth addiction at 62 was a good idea. <laughs> only only one in the room. And that's our guest today. His yeah. name is Randy Parker. And uh, before the mics were cracked on, he goes, who Starts meth at age 62. <laughs> Isn't that what you said, Randy? Yeah. And so we're going to hear Randy's story. You're listening to Project Recovery. Stick around. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Our guest today is Randy Parker. He started meth at the age of 62. He's 69 now, and he's got 399 days of sobriety underneath his belt. Well Rand- done. How are you doing, Randy? I'm doing great. Yep. Um, off air, you told me this is the best you felt in a long time. It is, because um, in my mind, the, uh, the substance is not the only problem, and it's not the biggest problem. It's the culture that you end up finding yourself in and seeking out. And that culture is uh, puts a big damper on how you feel about yourself. I can see that. And so when you uh, – you, you can't – the, the addiction, is, in my case at least, was the smallest thing to overcome. But feeling good about yourself, learning to love yourself, learning to forgive yourself, uh, that's the hardest part. Doing the work, as they say. For me, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, and I've said this before on the podcast, but I remember sitting in Pinnacle Recovery talking to my therapist and my therapist going, hey, do you want me to blow your mind? And I'm like, yeah, I'm in recovery. Let's do this. And he goes, 
alcohol is not your problem. And I was like, you are the worst therapist ever because <laughs> I'm in here for addiction. Check sure, your notes, buddy. Pretty sure alcohol is my problem. He goes, no, your problems are your problems. Hmm. And alcohol was your solution. Uh, but now you can add it to your problems as well. But you've got a lot more problems than just alcohol. And until we unpack that backpack or dig deep, sobriety is not going to come easy to you. Yeah, for sure. So where does the story of Randy Parker be begin? Well, I was uh, born and raised in Salt Lake. Um, and uh, my dad had a, drink, a drinking issue. Of course, back then it was... Um, you said it right there. It was an issue. It wasn't a problem. It wasn't an addiction. It was an issue. Yeah, we downplayed it. And, and, but we did that culturally. Well, that was the culture. It was like, oh, that, he has a little bit of a drinking. Yeah. He drinks. Yeah. You know? yeah. But that's about all you'd say. And it was normally underneath your breath and never in front of the person who has it. Right. You know, right. it was just like, oh, okay, yeah. he's got this issue. Or dad's been drinking. Yeah. And so he had a little bit of a problem. Yeah. And uh, he, my mom and dad divorced and we moved to Elko because my dad worked for the railroad. That's where our producer Joshie's from. <laughs> Is it really? Uh, <laughs> that's why that's why you heard the <laughs> yeah, Go guys, Indian. Yeah, go Indians. <laughs> yeah, you guys just gave the Elko look. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you moved to Elko. Moved to Elko uh in my high school years. Uh, I didn't know anyone there. And so you go to the party and you start meeting people. Mm -hmm. And um I was drinking uh, a fair amount. Uh, yeah, I was drinking. <laughs> well, wouldn't you say, because this is pretty common, when a teenager is trying to find friends in a new school or new town, the kids who party are usually the most welcoming. Mm -hmm. And it's easier to make friends with them because all the, the price of admission is just being willing to drink along with them. Right. And, and kids who don't drink and don't party sometimes – they have their social groups and they're a little exclusive. It's harder to break in with certain groups of kids. But if you, the partiers are almost always happy to have another party. Yeah, you show up with a six pack, you got five friends. And, well, and when I was you're a thinking teenager, you show that's up with a cooler. Yeah. <laughs> instantly. So you're really popular. Yeah, you're the new guy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I, I, I did some drinking during high school and then I got, I uh, uh, started smoking some weed and then started hitting acid. Now, that was back. Wait, that, that escalated pretty quick. <laughs> it did. Uh, I mean, do you remember the age you first tried alcohol? Was it at home with your parents? Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I was probably eight, ten. Yeah, having like a sip that. off dad's beer. Exactly. And, and having two when he wasn't looking. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden you, you, you knew that the, the, the way into the social circle in high school. Mm -hmm. And so you started drinking. And what was your experience with it? Um, just, oh, I drink till I threw up and pass out. So hopefully binge, I binge drinking. Yeah. Right? That's what most teenagers do. Yeah. And, um, we'd go out uh, fishing and get drunk. That's what we did. Um, and then you said you kind of moved over into marijuana. Yep. Yep. Started doing that and then was introduced to acid and that was acid in the seventies. So that was the OG stuff. Yes. Yeah. And, um, I joined the, uh, the military right out of high school. And uh, my supply chain immediately drew, drew or uh, dried up. Yeah, dried up exactly. Not a lot of acid to be found in the military. No, not much. There is some. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I bet there's some. Yeah, there is. And um, so after I let uh, me ask you this: Why the military? Uh, is that something you always wanted to do? Is it just uh, your only option, or seemed like the best option? It was all of those. 
in high in Elko, there was no well, there was a little tiny college, but you really weren't weren't going to go any place with that. And I'm not uh, being judgmental at all. It's just the way it was. And um, all of my brothers had been to college and and all that stuff. So I had a a bar to hit, and uh, but I didn't have any financing, and all I wanted to do was party. And my dad. Um, said, Randy, I think he was just tired of me hanging around. He says, Randy, he says, have you ever thought about going to the military? I said, no, I haven't. So the next day, I called the recruiters. They were, they were in Salt Lake. Um, the next week, I was on a Greyhound bus coming to Salt Lake to uh, do my AFAB testing and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then a month later, I was on another bus coming to Salt Lake to get on the airplane to go to boot camp. Really? Yeah. That was pretty quick. Uh, because I, if I were going to dig out of Elko, uh, I, first of all, had to relocate away, away from it because the resources just weren't there. And um, so, and I'm an adventurous kind of guy, and I looked at this as a, a true adventure on Uncle Sam's dime. And uh, they're going to, three, uh, you know, they're going to feed you three square a day, give you clothes, and a place to sleep, and uh, how can that be be bad? It was during uh, Vietnam, and um, um, <clears throat> so after I uh, went to boot camp. Yeah, after I went to boot camp. God, that was July twentieth at two in the morning, I walked off that airplane, and uh, that was a culture shock. Here it was, ninety five degrees at two in the morning, and ninety uh, percent humidity. Near Vietnam. Yeah, no, in San Antonio. Okay. Yeah, for boot camp. And uh, after that, uh, in boot camp, I went to Biloxi, Mississippi for some training. And then, you you know, once you get out of boot camp, the world's open to you again. And uh, got involved with drugs again. Um, got through my training okay. Uh, um, and was uh, stationed at Travis Air Force Base in California. That was the first stop POWs made when they came home. Okay. And um, I I was partying well. I had a good good circle of buddies. and um, uh, But there was something in me that says, you know what? This just isn't right for me. I should be doing something else. I had been uh, uh, raised in the church somewhat. And um, so I thought, you know what? I, I, I got to go down that path some more. Because I knew how good that felt, and uh, so I went down that path and um, ended up uh, ma- marrying a gal from Ogden, Utah. We knew each other six months, got married, and boy, that, uh, we started having kids, and uh, we now have five kids. Except my my wife, we divorced, and she passed away, and so um, um, we had the five kids, but then I started trying to live two lives. And that was a train wreck waiting to happen. When you say living two lives, one with the church and one with the partying? Yep, exactly. And had you left the military at that point? No. No. I was still in it. Um, And um, that that lifestyle was very foreign to to my wife. She she didn't know anything. She, She had a brother that was an alcoholic. Uh, but no one talked about that. Um, and um, so th- that was my path for, those were my paths, say, 
uh, for about uh, 20 years. And uh, to try to keep that under wrap for that long and still maintain some self-worth is difficult to do when you're, because my whole, my whole identity came from external validation. God, Randy's a good guy, you know? Yeah, but you don't know the real Randy and you're not about to. Uh, is that your internal dialogue? You're mm-hmm. thinking, yeah. you know, people give you a compliment and you're thinking, yeah, but if you really knew the real me, you exactly. wouldn't like me so much. So were you on church on Sundays and partying through the rest of the week? Pretty much. And so the people at church were saying, Randy's a great guy, mm-hmm. done these wonderful things, but they didn't know what Randy was doing on a Thursday night. Did not. And what you thought you were doing on a Thursday night was bad. Exactly. So what do you do? Your self-worth tanks. And to cover that up, you do some more. And you get into that cycle uh, of, of not wanting to, to feel things, not wanting to know what your emotions feel like. Escape, numb, run. Yep, exactly. And at any point, um, did your wife, uh, rest her soul, uh, did she say anything about your drinking and your partying ways, or did you keep it hid from her as well? No, she, she knew. Uh, she wasn't happy about it. Uh, but our lives were really, really busy. We owned a business in Ogden, and it just consumed our time. And um, my my um, go-to was if I have other people around me, then that diffuses what my behavior is because we all have to be nice to each other and our company um, when everybody's around. And does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so. If, if it's hard to get yelled at by your wife if the house is full. Exactly. So keeping busy was sort of a way to kind of allow yourself to keep using, really. That was my manipulation. Yeah. And I used a similar tactic and that you would test yourself is that – we had friends over, and did, was, was, I, was I a jerk? Was I rude? Was it, you know what I mean? And so it was a way to validate your behavior. Because if you were doing what you were doing in front of company and no one's calling you out on it, how bad is the behavior really? So it's, it's that justification. That Manipulation. Comes it's all of that. Yeah, it is. And then you're lying all the time. And uh, um, it was just a, a During train. those years, were you just drinking or were you also using other substances? I was just drinking, drinking and smoking, and um, and holding prominent LDS positions. So then you're lying at church to get you know because they're asking you for for those who don't know to to hold a position and be in 100 percent good graces with the LDS church. You have to follow the law, uh, the uh, covenants. Word of wisdom. Word of wisdom. There, mm-hmm. I was trying to say law of chastity. I don't know. I got sex on my head, but, I guess. <laughs> but law, uh, the word of wisdom, and that means you can't drink, can't smoke, all those things. Right. So the reason I bring that up isn't to call you out because I no, know that's you're, fine. you're calling I'm, yourself that's why out. I'm here. But that's your. I'm trying, trying to ha- like sort of emphasize your point of destroying your self worth. The when we lie. And if we lie on a regular basis about something, then we start to think of ourselves as a liar. And being a liar is not anything good in our society, right? So there are all these places in life where you're slowly chipping away at your self-esteem and your self-worth. And over time, that really does drag a person down. And like you said, the worse you feel, it's sort of that, well, might as well drink to feel a little better. So mm-hmm. it, it, it 
it's a hole. It's a spiral downward, right? Yeah. You keep that going for a while. Uh, 20 years, you said. Yeah. And um, then uh, we we divorced. Did you divorce because of your behavior? Uh, Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it, that's exactly, well, for the most part, there's always other stuff that feeds into it because you can't just have an addiction. I mean, you suck everything into it. Yeah. Uh, I was very, very fortunate to have never been pulled over, never got a DUI, never got arrested. My, my, um, record was spotless and, um, which it, is pretty amazing if you're drinking every day for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, not not too many people get that lucky. And then after uh, we divorced, then it, the party really got heavy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had cancer. I uh, was treated with uh, radiation, and it did its damage, and it did a lot of damage. And uh, so I had um, a lot of bad pain. And so to to treat that, they give you bottles of pills. This and, was how long ago? <sighs> 10, 12 years ago. 10, 12 years ago, and we've talked about it on the podcast before, um, you know, it was a different world back then when it when it, it really was. With opioids. Yeah, I would say from, you know, mid to late 90s to the first decade and a half of the 2000s, we were really in a an opioid crisis. It started to turn around, thankfully, in the last, but just five or six mm-hmm. years, really. So they were giving you all the things. Oh, everything, yeah. Norco, uh, Tylenol threes, fentanyl, oxycontin, morphine, the whole the whole uh, spice rack. And did that ever seem to alleviate you from the pain? No, it didn't do anything for the pain. So why'd you keep taking them? Because I had them. Because I was an addict at that point. And um, do you remember when all of a sudden you realized that it wasn't helping with the pain? But you still like because you just said you were an addict. But did you ever have that conversation with yourself? It's like these aren't doing anything, but I can't stop them. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to stop them either. Um, were you getting a euphoric feeling from them? Or the, were, no. were you drinking as much? No, no, I wasn't drinking as much. I cut that way back when I started on the opioids. And um, after a year of opioids, uh, I thought, you know, this is this is. Um, this isn't the way I want to live my, the last years of my life. and um, You're already thinking about the last years of your life. Exactly. Is that how bad it was? Yeah, it was because I had lived the lie for so many years that my self-worth was is in the sewer. And so how do you get out of that when you've brought so much shame onto yourself and traumatic shame from your childhood gets stacked in there? Uh, so you usually start contemplating taking your life. Depression and, and hopelessness, right? Exactly. Yeah. And um, so it was on a Friday night. I thought, you know what? I got enough morphine to light this whole town up. Um, I can take it, end it, pain's over, or I can flush it and see what happens. So I, I chose the latter and mm-hmm. um, had the worst weekend of my life. And then I... Um, so you were dope sick. Mm-hmm. You were coming off it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I went to the doctor the next week. Gosh, she chewed my butt out. She says, Randy, you could have killed yourself. Yeah. I said, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> I was thinking, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, but by 
by flushing them and not tapering, then I um, had no other options. I had my life back, but it was going to be able a long, hard row to get it back. And um, so I uh, went off the opioids, and you know what do they always say? You know, you you give up one drug, you got to replace it with something else, right? Mm-hmm. And I was introduced to methamphetamine. Six so, two. Walk me through this. I mean, you're a grandpa of five children, mm-hmm. five grandkids. Yep. You're 62 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been in the Air Force. Um, how does one get introduced to meth at 62? Uh, you usually it's a friend of a friend kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a neighbor and and. Uh, I knew he was in, into drugs, and so I asked him, hey, do you know anything about this? And uh, he says, oh, yeah, I do. And that's that's when the party started. Were you – so you quit the opioids. What was the motivation to go cold turkey? You kind of presented it as an alternative to suicide. Were you expecting to live a sober life? Like were you thinking, okay – I'm going to choose between suicide and sobriety, or were you just wanting to get off the opioids? I don't think uh, my thought process had that much clarity to it. I knew I felt like crap. And what I had been doing certainly wasn't helping, mm-hmm. and it wasn't working. And uh, uh, so I, it, my back door led to my front door. And so I could um, get off of the opioids and see what's out there to help me um, get my life back because I didn't have it. And you thought meth was going to work? Yeah, I thought meth that was a good option. <laughs> yeah. Well, what was it about meth that you thought? Would, I didn't. I didn't know. know anything about meth. Yeah. And so, tell me about the first time you tried meth. Uh, first time I tried meth, I was awake for three days, and. Um, I had no idea what to expect. I had no idea uh, of the effects of it, how long the effects would last, uh, what the side effects were, what all, I mean, this, the nutrition and hydrating and all that stuff. I had no idea what that was like. And so I, um, I just learned it on my own and for the grace of a couple of guys there uh, helped me live through it. So you do meth, you're up for three days. Uh, how instantaneously does that addiction take hold? Uh, instantly. Mine was. It was like, holy crap. Um, and I started uh, at my peak of meth. I would stay, I'd stay up seven, eight days. Holy cow. And at my age, that's not a safe thing to do. No. And a diabetic. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. At any age, that's not a good thing. Yeah. True. Yeah. True. But and you were also you're also diabetic, right? And um, um, when my significant other said, "Randy, you're you're going to run out of luck, and um, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it. There's nothing I can do to keep you from doing it." Or not doing it. So, um, so the, is this a, a new lady in your life? Mm-hmm. Yep. And we'd been um, we'd been together oh eight or nine years, and so uh, so she knew me well, 
And uh, she says, and, but see, I, I, I used right under her nose for six years. Meth? Yeah. And she didn't pick up on that? She, well, she had never been introduced into that world. She had no idea what it was like or what it was. Um, she'd had a relative um, die of uh, alcohol. And uh, so she, was, she just did, had no idea what the drug world was, was about. And I'm too old to think I knew everything about it. I just scratching the surface is what I was doing. And um, so uh, not only was my luck going to run out, and when she says, there's nothing I can do because you're going to do it if you want to, but please do it for yourself. And uh, that was um, 400 days ago. So your rock bottom was a heart to heart from your significant other. Right. What about that conversation motivated you to get into treatment? Uh, I wanted to, it, it wasn't getting off the drugs and stuff. It was, um, I wanted to find an authentic me that I could look in the mirror and say, you're a good person. Um, and to say, Come on, guy. We got. It. We we love each other here, and I was doing things that uh, was destroying that from inside. Um, you said you had five kids. Did they ever know any of uh, the math? Did they know anything that's going on with you? No. So it sounds like you were living a life. You've said it before. A, a dual life. A lot of it, you were just living by yourself and just feeding your addiction. Mm-hmm. It's a lonely world. Yeah. I think it's profound that you wanted to have a better relationship with yourself, really. I mean, I know that sounds a little hokey, but I mean, yeah, it doesn't when you really think about it. Like, we all have a relationship with ourselves. We all feel a certain way about ourselves. And you can call that self-esteem or concept or self-worth. Those are all good words. But it's a relationship with yourself, and it sounds like you were tired of having a bad relationship with yourself. Uh, Yeah, I I did not like myself. How does one at the age of 68 find their authentic self? Um, Because it sounds like from the get-go, in one shape, way, or form, you've been partying since you were 18. Mm -hmm. Pretty much. So I'm curious of how you find your authentic self at 68. Um. I started, um, how I got caught was I went for a uh, annual um, physical at the VA and my doctor ordered a, a drug panel. And um, she, um, the next time I went in, she said, so how long have you been taking amphetamines? I said, I don't take amphetamines. Randy, methamphetamine. Okay, busted. And uh, she and I had developed a, a good, honest relationship. She says, I'll do anything for you, but don't lie. If you lie, then what I do isn't helping you at all. And so that's, that was the thought that I had go through my head at that time. I just lied to her. And uh, she's probably uh, the one that's going to help me the best. And she did. She hooked me up into the, um, the VA... Uh, system where we had a a zoom uh meeting once a week for an hour that wasn't going to satisfy me i had to have more and um 
So after a few months of that, I, um, I talked to her about it. I say, I, I got to have something more. I need a big change in my lifestyle. And she says, okay. So um, that's when I was introduced to the treatment center in Ogden. And you went there and you found a community. Yes, I did. And it's been 400 days. Yep. How long did you, was that an inpatient where you go and stay? No, that was an intensive outpatient. Okay. And um, so I was there for five, six hours a day. Um, a couple of days a week was seven or eight hours. So five, 20, about 30 hours a week. Almost a full-time job. Yeah. yeah. Plus all the homework you got to do. It's a 12-step it's a program. And so you got a lot of homework to do. And, and by doing that, you learn who you are. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, it was exciting. It was more exciting than chasing a drug. I got, I got to have more of this. And it I was, like that. It was a um, great um, moment to to feel like I'm a good person. But um, that's what I did. That's not who I am. And I'm uh, forsaking that and uh, going to uh, steer my life the way I'm going to feel be happy. You nailed it right there. The difference between what we do and who we are. Our behaviors versus ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so many times, even as young children, uh, we get the wrong message that we're bad instead of our behavior was bad or inappropriate. Mm-hmm. And that can just steamroll into an adult self that thinks of themselves as a bad person. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody does some things they shouldn't do and should and need to apologize for. I don't think anybody makes it through life without... Um, hurting other people in some mm-hmm. way, yeah. you know, um, that being said, we can, the, the key to overcoming it is what you said, where you're like, you know what, that's not who I am. That's what I've done. And I can change those behaviors because I'm a good person. Mm-hmm. And that, that you did a lot of introspective work. It sounds like there at the treatment center, uh, a huge amount yeah. and, and still do. Yeah, every what, day, every day I learned something new about this. When the mics were off, you were talking about your journey, and you said your sobriety, uh, you're doing a lot of paying it forward and paying it back. Tell me about paying it forward and paying it back. Um, I had um, my, my, my theory, my simplified theory of life is that we are here to ease other, other people's burdens, to share those burdens. And um, if I can do that in whatever way, it doesn't have to be big. It can even just be opening a door. Um, that's what I mean by uh, paying it forward. And paying it back is um, those things that I pushed so far away, especially my family. Um, that's where I get, hopefully, the payback comes home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it and it does. You have to be very patient with it. What's your relationship like with your kids these days? Um, I have a great relationship with one of my sons and his family, and then I have a, a relationship that is starting to um, grow with uh, one of my other sons. Now I've got uh, uh, another son and a daughter that I, I don't have any communication with. Mm. It's not to say it won't happen. Mm-hmm. but it's going to have to happen through time. 
And that's probably one of the um, the things that you, when you're going through recovery, impatience isn't a virtue. I mean, impatience doesn't come easy uh, to an addict because they want what they want and they want it now. Instant gratification. Yep. No matter if that's a drug or a, a liquid or a relationship. And uh, so I've had to learn to step back. Recovery takes time for everybody. Mm-hmm. And all I can do is uh, be my most authentic, good self. And if that is recognized, then we're in. But if they choose to be um, captivated or choose to be prisoner of just hate, uh, I, I don't want to live in that life either. And if I can help them with that, hopefully. Randy, do me a favor here. Describe who you thought you were during your party years. If somebody was to describe Randy, what would they say? Which Randy? The the, the guy that <laughs> you, you know thought I mean? you were. Um, I was very uh, generous. Um, I was generous with my time and my my uh, resources, um, my home. You know, uh, we had our home opened up almost all the time. Someone was living with us um, just to help somebody out. But what did you think about yourself? Uh, I didn't like myself. I did not like myself. Is that because, because I, knew, I knew the other part? Because yeah. I want to read you what a mutual friend of ours said about you. This is from Lizzie Dankers. Randy Parker is a veteran. He's a great guy. He will bend over backwards to help people get sober. He goes to check on people who aren't answering, pays for their groceries, paid rent for a few people, gives rides for meetings. He's just a great guy. I agree to that now um, because now I know I can and I can provide that. What if somebody had said something complimentary about you like that back in your days of use? Would it have been so easy to accept that as who you were? Uh, no, because I wasn't working on bettering myself. Mm-hmm. It was just shallow because it wasn't um, who I wanted to be. I mean, it, it's what I wanted to be, but I couldn't do it um, the way that everyone else wanted me to, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably really true. Like um, I think when we're not being our best selves in life, whether it's an addiction or something else, there's usually a part of us that knows we want to be the, the, the authentic person. We want to be that better person that's productive and happy and genuine and, uh, you know, I, I think we have to listen to that at some point so we can try to work on becoming that person. Mm-hmm. But it can be really hard when you feel a, a huge dichotomy between who you, you know, how people see you and how you see yourself. And that uh, it's pretty impressive that now that I like the fact that this is probably the first conversation we've had where the person behind the microphone there is saying that self-improvement, like I know that's a theme of every recovery, Mm -hmm. but I mean, it seems like that's the core center for you was learning to love yourself Mm -hmm. and, and be okay with yourself. And I think that's a beautiful response to an addiction. Like you, you crush that addiction with self-love. And I think that's amazing. You know, in my travels and talking to people, 
there's a lot of people I know who are into their 60s, maybe their 70s, still drinking too much and accepting the life that they've been giving. And they go, this is just it. I'm an alcoholic. Too old to change. Too old to change. Don't want to. Couldn't if I wanted to. And so they just accept it. Because they can't see anything else. Mm -hmm. But here you are at 69 with 400 days of sobriety underneath your belt. Can you look at those people and tell them, my life is so much better now? Mm -hmm. It's crazy, right? Like, how much better is your life today than 400 days ago? Uh, Let's go back until I was 10 years of age. You know, I like myself. For the first time in a long, since you were little. Exactly. I like being in my skin. And uh, that says a lot also for the support that I had going through this um, this change. I love it. I love Randy. <laughs> well, I think Randy's a great example for anybody out there who thinks they're too old to change. Yeah. And uh, sometimes you meet a, a 40-year-old that thinks they're too old to change. You know, I mean, I, I think that's great inspiration to know that at any age – you can turn things around, repair yourself, and become the person you want to be. Well, I think you're an amazing person. I think your story is going to help so many. And I'm blessed and fortunate to be able to say I know you and I consider you a friend. And uh, thank you for sharing your story. You're welcome. Dr. Matt, I mean, pretty amazing. I, I love this because it's uh, – it's, um, I feel like this is a really authentic – solution to like becoming your best self liking yourself doing that introspective work i think a lot of times as adults we get so scattered with uh family and work and other obligations that we forget to develop ourselves and so that self-development goes by the wayside i think there are a lot of adults that struggle with how they feel about themselves and i think randy you're a great example of take you know make that a priority even if you're not uh, an addict, you, you might be really struggling with self-esteem and self-worth. Mm-hmm. And those are some of the core aspects of depression. And so when I talk with somebody who's depressed, they rarely feel really good about themselves. So you're doing much more than just helping yourself not be addicted. You're also reducing depression in your life and building self-esteem. I think, the, I think you're a wonderful example of that. So thanks for sharing that on you our show. Thank you. And he's a wonderful human. Yeah. <laughs> this is not the right place to do it, but I, I want to do it. Tell us again when uh, you bought meth that they thought you were an undercover cop. <laughs> <laughs> I walked in. Just so the listeners know, Randy does not look like a drug addict or user of any kind. He said one time he was buying meth, and they're like, you're an undercover cop. And he's like, no, I'm not. Yeah. yeah, I walked into the place, and... Boom. <laughs> they all scattered? Yeah. <laughs> you hear doors slamming and windows breaking. <laughs> What's going on? Oh, they think you're a cop. <laughs> I, I love you, Randy, and I'm so grateful that you stopped by. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank Keep you. Keep us in the know what's going on with you, and if we can ever help, don't be afraid to ask. Good deal. Thanks. And thank you for stopping by and listening to another episode of Project Recovery. Uh, I'm very fortunate and blessed that we get to do this every week. Thank you, Dr. Matt. We get to share wonderful stories like Randy. And if you have a story to share, make sure you reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, We'd love to share your story and let people know that recovery is possible. And in case you forgot, Project Recovery is what? It's a KSL podcast. 
He's a grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk.